Open your Bibles to Luke 5, verse 17. Another beautiful story. Luke 5, verse 17 through 26. Hear God's word, Luke 5, 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And the grass withers and the flowers fade and this good word endures even to today, even unto the end of the world. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, again for your word. Holy Spirit, we do offer to you our hearts today and we ask that you would do your healing, convicting, reproving, comforting work in our lives and would you show us Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So it's another amazing story. And again, remember that we're in a section that began with verse one of chapter five and is gonna go through verse 16 of chapter six. And in this little section, Luke isn't just talking about how incredible Jesus is and how wonderfully he fulfills his inaugural sermon. You remember Luke 4, 18 and 19, I've come to bring release. That's his programmatic sermon, it's why I'm here. So he doesn't just talk about how incredible Jesus is and wonderful his mission is, but he also, along with that, he describes the responses of people, both individuals and groups of people, and you and I need that. And what that does for us, it shows us how we're supposed to respond today and how we're not supposed to respond because we always respond, we're never neutral. Each time we hear the word, there will be a response. So the question for us is, how will we respond today? 
So remember what we said is that Luke's really trying to get us to engage with Jesus here. He's asking us to imagine, imagine that you're there. Imagine you're among that group in the house. You're watching what's going on. Maybe you're one of the friends carrying the paralytic or you're the paralytic healed. Enter in, assess what that means for you. How will you respond to Jesus? And so the healing of the paralytic is similar in these respects to the other two stories we've already studied in this section. The great catch of fish and the healing of the leper but it also progresses over them in two ways. It progresses over them because in this passage, Jesus is making very overt what he's implied in the other stories. And in addition to that, Jesus is also encountering for the first time opposition. And these two factors mark this story as being a turning point, very significant, a turning point in his ministry. So let's just walk through the story. Uh, on one of those days, on one of those days, Luke says Jesus is teaching. So it's most likely not a Sabbath. Most likely it's a weekday. We talk about Jesus on weekdays, not just Sabbath Sundays. And so Jesus is teaching, and he's not teaching now in a boat, as he did with the catch, or on a street corner, as he did with the leper, but now he's in someone's home. And we use our homes to speak of Jesus. And opening by saying he's teaching underscores once again what the center and heart of his ministry is. In his programmatic sermon for 18 and 19, he says, I've come to preach the good news to the poor. In chapter four, verse 43, after a day of healing, he gets up early in the morning, prays to his father, and comes back to his apostles and says, wait, my purpose is that I'm sent around preaching the good news of the kingdom. So we see the fundamental nature of his preaching gospel, and that's what he's doing. What's obviously new to the story is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are sitting right there, right in front of him. And moreover, they've come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. They've come from all over. And so this is the first mention in Luke of Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're presented prominently in the story because Jesus initiates a confrontation with them. He like forces them to deal with him. And that's really a grace that he does that. He makes them uncomfortable with who he is. So they come from all over, and it appears that they are officials of organized Judaism that are starting to take notice of what's going on with Jesus, and they're a little unsettled by it. This may even be an official delegation sent to examine, evaluate, and report on Jesus. So just briefly, the Pharisees were this lay separatist or holiness movement in Israel. And so they may have been small in number. The historian Josephus says there were only 6,000 of them. Others say there are a lot more. But in any event, they were respected by the people and exerted a lot of influence. Like if you were serious about the law, you at least appreciated the Pharisees. Their agenda was to hold tightly to God's law as tightly as they could with special emphasis on those aspects of the law which were visible that marked them as distinct 
from pagan Gentiles, from the encroaching worldly culture around them. And so they emphasized things like what you eat and how you tithe and circumcision and the Sabbath because they wanted to mark a clear division between them and the world. And the purpose of that was that they hoped that through that, they'd speed the coming of Messiah to restore the nation. That was their longing. So the goal is good. But how ironic here that those that ache so fervently for Messiah, that they're sitting right in front of him, listening to his teaching, and yet because he doesn't fit their expectations of what he ought to be like, that rather than sitting under him to learn, they're sitting over him to judge. Which just highlights how subtle and deceptive and blinding sin is. And so the teachers of the law or scribes were oftentimes Pharisees, and these probably were. They were religious leaders, experts in the law who helped codify all the laws, and they added fencing laws around God's law to help guard people from breaking God's law. And so they accompanied the Pharisees to help them discern if Jesus is crossing the line, if he checks out. So that's what you got in front of Jesus. Now, as Jesus is teaching, Luke says, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And that's a really sweet phrase, just how kind that his power is present for the needy people coming to him. We expect that to be the same today. It also shows the mystery of the incarnation. You see, the Son of God depends on the power of the Holy Spirit in his human nature, just like you and I do. Now, Jesus never was devoid of the Lord's power, but at the same time, the fact that he says that here implies that sometimes it might not be quite that way. In fact, sometimes, if you recall, you read that because of the unbelief of his audience, that he couldn't do many miracle, miracles. And that's, a, that's, a, that's difficult to understand that phrase. But in some sense, our unbelief, in the words of Matthew Henry, tithe the hands of omnipotence. Or in the words of Calvin, bind up the hands by our obstinance. In some sense, our unbelief binds God's hands. Not ultimately, but in some sense it does. But here we see that his power is present to heal. It suggests that this crowd is dependent and needy and humbly attending to Jesus' word. So the question for us is, is that us? Would we be marked by a believing audience or congregation or an unbelieving audience congregation? So some men, Mark says there's four of them for each corner of the bed, were bringing a man who was paralyzed on a bed trying to get him to Jesus, to lay him before Jesus. And this man's condition is severe. He's a paralytic. Some injury to a motor area of the brain or the spinal cord. He can't move, so he's utterly dependent on his friends to find a way to get him into Jesus' presence. There's no other recourse. He needs this group of friends. But the four friends, as they carry their friend to Jesus, hit an impasse. It's a blockade. The crowds are so packed around the door and packed 
inside the house that there is no way to get him inside. So the question is what they're gonna do. Are they gonna give up and go home? But these resourceful friends aren't dissuaded, they won't be denied. They spot a staircase to the roof. And who's the one that said, I know what we can do with this? I just imagine. And uh, probably good childhood friends and they've mixed it up in other ways and they say, we can deal with this problem. Well, people back then, they'd open up their roofs and they became living spaces. And so there were staircase that went up and there were these beams that went across the wall Then perpendicular were sticks and reeds and then you put a blanket of mud, straw and clay. Luke says, calls it tiles. Maybe that refers to the clay. Could have been tiled over that. So these four men hoist their paralyzed friend up the stairs and despite anyone's objection to them, especially the homeowner, he might have had something to say. They, they dig out a hole in the roof. And so you just imagine, you're, you're sitting there in this not well-ventilated house, rather dark, stifling with so many people, and all of a sudden you're going, what in the world is going on? This dust and hardened clay and straw and sticks start falling around you. And then this shaft of sunlight appears, and then... This man tied to a stretcher is lowered, inserted into that hole and lowered by ropes such that dramatically he arrives right in front of Jesus. And then the question is, how's Jesus going to respond to that? I mean, is he gonna get flustered, annoyed? I mean, totally disrupted what he had going on. I mean, it had to have been messy and inconvenient. It stopped everything. But Luke says, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. That that's the words out of his mouth. And we just see that far from being irritated by what they did, Jesus is actually delighted by what they did. I mean, he loves faith. He doesn't drive us away when we come to him with our need. He, he draw, it draws him to us. When, he come, when we come to him with our need. His approval is stressed by the fact that this is the first time the word faith is actually mentioned in Luke, right here. If you wanna see what faith is, look at these guys. And Jesus calls attention to their faith when they haven't even said anything yet. Like, there's no words. There's no profession of faith here. He discerns their faith by what they do. It's like, James, I will show you my faith by my works. I mean, it's convicting. I mean, it's inspiring. Their actions show they believe Jesus is capable enough and caring enough to heal their friend. The sincerity and the strength of their faith is evidenced by the lengths they will go to get their friend in front of Jesus. There's this sense of urgency they have, this persistence, this pushing through obstacles, even creativity, imagination. They have it all. It, it shows a robust and living faith in these friends. So we just ask what we have done. Is that something of the faith that you and I have in Jesus to get ourselves and get those we love to Jesus? And again, Jesus looks at them and notice he commends their faith. It's their faith, the faith of the five both the good friends and also the paralytic. It's because of their faith that he heals the paralytic. 
You see, your faith, your living faith in Jesus benefits other people. The faith of parents leads God to view their children as covenant members. The faith of believing friends serves to mutually build each other up. The faith of friends of an unbeliever leads us to pray and to seek to speak words in season. The paralytic doesn't get healed without the faith of his friends. Striking. Well, let's consider what Jesus says in response to their faith. He says, man, your sins are forgiven. Um, But they came for healing. That's why they're there. They want their friend to be healed. Why does Jesus speak about forgiveness? And what Jesus says to them, what Jesus says to us is that The worst disability you and I have is not a physical paralysis, but a spiritual paralysis. The greatest, most necessary healing you and I need is healing not from our physical disabilities, but from our spiritual disabilities, from a paralysis of the bondage of sin's power and subjection to sin's guilt. That's what we really need, and Jesus puts it front and center before everybody right here. As much as you and I want healthy bodies, even more crucial are healthy souls. And in a world that that idolizes the body so much, is that what we think? Like, is that our priority? And Jesus wants it to be our priority without diminishing the other. Faith in Jesus serves for all our sins to be forgiven. That's the basic promise of the gospel that Jesus declares here. And then another reason Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven, is that he's forcing this crowd to wrestle, especially the Pharisees and the scribes, to wrestle with who he is. And so again, like I said, he makes overt what was implied earlier. He now is saying, look, I have authority to declare your sins forgiven, so who does that mean I am? Deal with that. And sure enough, the scribes and Pharisees' minds are triggered and they go, who is this? But the only thing is they don't stop there. Sadly, they go along and say, who is this? He speaks blasphemies, like right off the bat. Categorically, he couldn't be who he says he is. They, they rightly understand that only God can forgive sins. All sin is ultimately against God, and that's what makes sin so horrifying. And you and I can give all kind of mitigating factors for our sin when it's just us and other people, but the deal is it's always against God. He's holy and he's loving, and you and I affront him and sin against him. That's why David, though he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, used his power in her life, in a destructive manner, and though he had murdered Uriah, he had the gall to say in his psalm, against you and you only have I sinned. Which isn't to diminish what he did to them, it's just to say, as bad and grievous, unconscionable as what I did to them, I I don't have words to know how grievous that was before a holy God. They understand that sin is ultimately against God and therefore God alone is authorized to forgive it and God alone is able to give it. If it's so grievous, who can pay it? 
But they're wrong, though they were right in there, they're wrong to say that Jesus can't do it. And so what they look at Jesus and they charge him with blasphemy, meaning he's taking God's prerogatives for himself. He's inserting himself in a role that only God can fulfill. Now Jesus doesn't actually say, I forgive you. Jesus uses the divine passive. He says, God forgives you essentially, and yet he talks more directly than anyone in history has ever talked. And therefore, as they listen to him, they're going, you are associating yourself so closely with God in our minds that you're stealing God's right and honor right here, unless that's who you are. Now, unwittingly, the Pharisees and scribes have given us a tremendous profession of faith. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Are we standing in the presence of God? Now Jesus reads their thoughts. He expresses some divinity here, just like Simeon said, you're gonna expose and reveal the thoughts of man. He does that for us. So he makes his point even clearer to them. He goes, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, this is the first time in the gospel that Luke has used the title son of man. And we're gonna talk about it several other times as we work through the gospel. But it was a way for Jesus to refer to himself as Messiah without slipping in to the political national views the people had. But also it's a way in which he can emphasize that he's a real man while at the same time saying, do you remember Daniel 7? The one like a son of man who gets the kingdom from the father. And so it alludes to his divinity too. To center what he says around this title focuses the issue even more emphatically on who he is. And that makes all the difference. So, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? And that's a good question. Which is easier? On the surface, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can verify it. It's invisible. It's between God and you. So who can say they aren't forgiven? It happens in the invisible world. However, to stand in front of a crowd and say, rise up and walk, that's acutely, obviously visible and apparent to everybody. You can prove it. Did he rise up and walk or not? You lay it on the line when you say that. So in a way, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but in a deeper way, in a deeper way, what's harder to say In a deeper way, it's much harder to declare someone's sins forgiven than to heal someone of paralysis because forgiveness is so much harder to give. In a way, you and I know that. When we've been grievously offended, how hard it is. But imagine the accumulated guilt of generations and centuries of the sins of men and women and boys and girls. No one there, no one there knows what it's gonna require of Jesus to declare this paralytic sin's forgiven. They can't. 
Jesus knows what's before him. He's saying these words, knowing what faces him in a couple of short years. Jesus can declare this believing paralytic forgiven because he himself would become a spiritual paralytic on his behalf. He's gonna surrender himself to the bondage of sin and subject himself to the punishment of our guilt. God's gonna die an eternal death in Jesus. God will suffer an eternal punishment in hell to forgive this man's sin. So as we look at this, we're just blown away by the healing of the paralytic, but really, that's nothing in comparison to what Jesus declares over this paralytic. To heal spiritual paralysis requires so much more. And so Jesus commands this paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And in this way, he establishes the physical healing as a proof that he's authorized to forgive sins. And he establishes it as a sign that he really did forgive his sins because as he's as forgiven of his sins as he is standing strong and tall in the presence of the crowd. What a declaration of pardon. If you wanna know if he's forgiven, is he walking? To stress how complete the healing is, he tells him to pick up, rise, pick up his bed and go home, and the man rises, picks up his bed and goes home. There's an exact correspondence. The only difference is the man glorifies God because he can't help himself. And so the rest of the crowd probably with the exception of the Pharisees and scribes, they all are just overwhelmed. They're beside themselves, glorifying God, being filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary, even strange and unexpected things today. Like, who would have ever thought? Notice the today. You see, in chapter four, verse 21, Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your healing, your hearing the today of the one who comes to proclaim release to the captives. It refers to the day of grace and salvation and they are experiencing that right here. We are in the day of grace. Who's ever seen this? Well, you and I are in this day too. We're in the day of grace and salvation. We're beside ourselves as a people We glorify God, we're filled with awe because we've seen the most extraordinary, unusual, unexpected thing that God has done. We see the cross turned into a victory. So we have this atmosphere of joy and expectancy at what Jesus will do in response to our faith. If he's done the hardest thing, what else might he do with the humble, dependent, needy faith of his people? We know Jesus suffered for our sins at the cross, that he didn't stay in the tomb, but rather that he rose up, he picked up his glorified body, and he went home. And the fact that Jesus did that means that you have a home ahead of you, and one day you'll rise up, pick up that glorified body, and go home. You see, if Jesus has done the hardest thing, the most costly thing, he's gonna get you all the way to glory. And he's gonna be attentive to you and your needs now in response to your faith. So the question for us is, who is he? Is he really this to me? Is this, do I believe his power is present for me right now because of his kindness and grace? Am I a friend to others 
that I'll push through those obstacles that are going to inevitably appear in order to get my friends into Jesus's presence and show my faith in creative ways? Am I gonna persevere and press on when obstacles are before me? Am I gonna live like I'm in the today of God's grace and my sins are washed and forgiven? And might I be filled with joy and gladness as a people? May it be so for us. Amen. Let's stand.